Paul's letter to the Philippian church is a letter of joy. But it is easy to forget that this is also a letter from jail. So it's a letter of joy and a letter from jail. And we are as a church in this season exploring how that can be true. So let's begin by reading the second half of verse 18 in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. I'll read the text, we'll pray, and we'll dig in. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that... In me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, as we listen, do not just open our ears, but open the eyes of our hearts so that we could actually see you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Somehow we are in the holiday season. Don't know how that happened. Thanksgiving is what, four days away? Four days away. Um, I'm hearing Christmas music already. My Starbucks cup is telling me it's Christmas time as well. I'm even, this weekend I was at some friends and I saw a Christmas tree up in the living room. It wasn't decorated, but it was up and it was in the corner. And every voice out there including my Starbucks cup, is telling me to have joy, to rejoice. But if I'm completely honest with you all, the older that I get, I have less joy and more anxiety when the holiday season rolls around. That sort of childlike joy that I used to have, gone. I have really honest friends, and many of them tell me I'm not alone, that it does indeed get harder to experience joy in the winter. I wonder if you resonate with this confession I recently read. This person writes, I know for myself some of my darker hours and harder struggles have been from November to January. Maybe it's failed expectation. Maybe it's family difficulties or general anxieties. Or maybe it's feeling like I'm not enough. Well, regardless... It's a time that should be filled with joy and happiness, but many times it can be hard. Any November to January strugglers out there, you don't have to raise your hand. But go ahead and raise your hand if you want. Anybody else more anxious and cheerful this season? Anybody else going to have to dig really deep to be thankful in four days? 
Philippians, and more specifically, the text we just heard is for you. Because in this text, we see that Paul's greatest concern is your joy. But it's clear to me that he's not describing holiday cheer. He's not describing the kind of joy that we usually think of when we hear that word. We know this because in verse 18 he says, I will rejoice while though he is in chains. And he does not know whether he will indeed live or die. We see it all throughout this text. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. If I had to choose, I think I'd I'd rather die, frankly, but I want to live. He doesn't know what his future holds in a very visceral way. He's in prison. He's already on his third missionary journey, so he's been struggling And yet he says, I will rejoice. And so we know right now that the joy that he is describing is probably quite different than the joy that we are expected to have, especially this time of year. And so I think there's hope for you. There's hope for me. It's a rare joy. It's a Christian joy. It's a joy that is yours in Christ. And we're going to unpack it this morning. What comprises Christian joy? This is a precious verse. I use that word often, precious, but it's a precious verse. Why? Because in it we see Paul describing not just that he will rejoice, but he tells us why he will rejoice. And so what we have is an anatomy of Christian joy. And we could parse this many ways, but because I'm a preacher, I'll do it in three ways here. What comprises Christian joy? Well, the first thing we see that Paul unpacks that is yours as well, is assurance. Assurance is the first ingredient to Christian joy. Paul writes in verse 19, if you take a look down the text, he says, For I know, I know, what does he know? He knows that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for what? For my deliverance. Now that word deliverance, what Paul has in mind when using that word deliverance is it goes far beyond a Roman tribunal. Paul can't say if he will survive that tribunal, can he? But Paul can't say that he knows, he knows, he knows in some respect that he will be delivered. That word that he uses for delivered is the same word that is usually translated as salvation. And it's clear to me as I've studied this text that Paul is describing a a deliverance. Paul is describing a salvation that extends beyond what he's facing in a few weeks. He knows that, that this will result in his salvation. How can he know? We see in... The broader context that Paul can have assurance because he knows his salvation starts and ends with God. It's the sovereignty of God. That's the first thing that builds into his assurance is the sovereignty of God. He says in chapter 1 verse 6, one of the most amazing verses that we could hear. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will do it. Not maybe, he will bring it to completion. I start jobs and I do not bring them into completion. So I'm a horrible example if you're looking for God's character in this way. God starts something and he finishes something. He saves you and then he saves you. 
He saves you past tense. He saves you future tense. Paul, because he's resting in the sovereignty of God, can say, I know that I am delivered. He also can have assurance because he is in Christ. He says to live as Christ. And all throughout Philippians, he is saying, in Christ, in Christ, I am in Christ. All throughout his letters, he is obsessed with this concept that when we lay hold of Jesus by faith, we are in a way incorporated into him or we are united to him in a, in a real sense so that Jesus and all that he has done stands for us and with us. Which is an amazing truth, which means his life of righteousness is yours by grace His death is yours. You have been crucified with Christ. And His resurrection is also yours. So that you will anticipate a day of resurrection. That's why the Bible can say, that's why Paul can say in other places that we are justified. Past tense. That's a courtroom term. We are declared righteous. He can say that before we get to the courtroom. The verdict is in. And that gives Paul assurance. Paul goes on. He says his assurance comes from this help of the Spirit in verse 19. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for my salvation. The word help is also understood as supply. The supply of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit connects us, in other words, to Jesus' life and work. And He connects us uh, to, to the work of Jesus. That's the Spirit of Jesus. He connects us to Jesus. He applies the perfect righteousness. And He applies all the comforts to us. The Holy Spirit does that. He keeps us in His love. And that's how Paul can have assurance. And there's another aspect that gives Paul assurance. And this one sort of boggles my mind. Because behind all of this are the simple prayers of Paul's church family. Did you notice in verse 19 he says, For I know that through your prayers and then the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Paul says, Through your prayers he will be delivered. So I love that because Paul does not allow his belief and trust in the sovereignty of God and his salvation to somehow hollow out and strip away his dependence on prayer and his dependence on the church. For him, he can have a totally sovereign God who saves and saves and who begins and completes and at the same time say, it's through your prayers that I'm delivered. This is the highest possible Admonition to intercessory prayer that I can find in the scriptures. And these things create assurance in Paul, which creates joy instead of anxiety when he's in prison. I will rejoice. Why? I have assurance. I have assurance that extends beyond what's going to happen to me in a few weeks or days. Earlier I mentioned that I get anxious in the holidays, but that's not really true. I get anxious any season of of the year, really. Um, I remember when I first became aware of my anxiety, uh, I was on vacation with my family as a kid, and my dad said, Joe, you are a worry worm, aren't you? And I thought to myself, wow, he just named something I've been feeling my whole life. 
In college, my worry really flared up. I would constantly be worried about things. I'd, be, I'd make up things to be worried about. Did I forget a class that I'm enrolled in? I'm not taking it, and then I'll fail out of college. My mind became worst-case scenario all the time. But this passage tells me that I can rejoice and not worry. Why? Because I have assurance of bigger things. What do I have assurance of? That the worst-case scenario already happened. That's what assurance tells me. That's what assurance can tell you. That the worst case scenario that you're playing out in your head actually already happened. Think about it. What is the worst case scenario in your entire life? What is it? It's not that. It's worse. It's that you will receive what your sons deserve. That's the worst case scenario. Let's think beyond the exam we have coming up. Let's get meta for a second. That's the worst case scenario. That the holy, righteous judgment that we cry out to when we see injustice. That that same holy, righteous judgment would be laid upon us. That's the worst case scenario. And friends, if you are in Christ, it already happened. Because we have been crucified in Christ. Our sins have indeed experienced the holy wrath of God. And they have been dealt with forever. The worst case scenario has already happened. And what it also tells me, this assurance, is that the best case scenario has already happened. Because I'm in Christ. Paul says to live is Christ. And I can say to myself and in my worries, I am in Christ. The verdict is already in. I do not have to fear judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are who? In Christ. The worst case scenario has already happened in Christ. The best case scenario has, praise God, already happened. And so now we can live today like that's true. Think about it. Without assurance, suffering in our life feels like punishment. With assurance, we are somehow able to rejoice in suffering like Paul. Without assurance, we become shallow and become proud and we become religious. But with assurance, we are self-aware of our sin. We're able to plumb the depths of our brokenness and how jacked up we really are. And we're able to say it and name it and name it with friends who also believe the gospel. And we're able to become more self-aware. And then we are also, therefore, more humble. Without assurance, we're brittle. We're really brittle and we're protective. Think about it. Without assurance, we try to do it alone. The Christian life becomes a private endeavor. But with assurance, we gladly, like Paul, say, it's through your prayers, man, that I am making it. God has made it so. Without assurance, I think we're afraid of death. And I don't think we name it. And I think it sort of bubbles out and really sort of dysfunctional ways, but we are afraid of death. But with assurance, we can die well. Without assurance, no joy. With assurance, we can say with Paul, yes, and I will rejoice. 
So that's the first ingredient of Christian joy. It's a rare joy. It's not holiday cheer. It's anchored in assurance in Christ. The second ingredient is purpose in Christ. Assurance in Christ on the one hand, now purpose in Christ. So many of us, I think, lack joy, the joy that the Christian descri- that the Bible describes because we feel like our lives have no real purpose. Paul has a joy because he has a divine purpose. And if he were to sort of write it down, I think it might be magnify Christ and model Christ to others. Magnify Christ and model Christ to others. Paul says he... Uh, He intends to honor Christ whether he dies or lives in verse 20. That word honor is actually magnify. Paul intends to magnify Christ whether he lives or dies in his body. He intends to do that. He doesn't care, in other words, if he lives or he dies. In fact, he prefers to die because it will bring him to Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. But he doesn't care so long as Christ is magnified in his witness, in his life. That's his overriding purpose. Do you see it? Paul's overriding purpose, and as you read his epistles, his letters, I think you see it. This guy's crazy. Why? Because he has a purpose that is simply put to magnify the fame of Jesus. He wants Jesus to be famous. He'll die if that's what it means, that Jesus will be famous. He says, look, I'm in chains, but I think it's advancing the gospel, and for that I'm happy. He said that last week if you were with us that's insane that's not natural that's supernatural that's a gift of the holy spirit but it's his purpose and it's our purpose too i think he also has a purpose to model christ no matter what this is verses 22 through 26 he's in anguish and he's telling us so he says i'm hard pressed i'm hard pressed in verse 23 between the two Between living and dying. I'm hard pressed. Why? As he contemplates his execution, he desires to be with Jesus on the one hand. And yet, as he contemplates the church and the people he knows in that church and that he loves, he wants to serve them and see them flourish all the more. He says, in his words, to see their progress and joy in the faith. Verse 25. He wants to observe their progress and he wants to observe their joy. And if he can, in any sense, take part in that, to be used by God in that, then he's like, let's do it. Let's do it. Either way, in his life or death, he wants to serve others to see them flourish. And in that way, he's modeling Jesus. Okay, He says, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks. Well, actually, Advent will happen in a few weeks. After that, we'll get into this. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Take a look at this. It's just a page over. Chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's talking to us, the church. And he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. So he's not saying... Take on something that's not yours. He's saying, no, this is yours in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be leveraged for his benefit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And his humility goes deeper. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, death on a cross. The life of Jesus was a cross-shaped life. Jesus, this text says, had all authority. He is the Lord of all. And yet he leveraged, he leveraged that lordship not to benefit himself. He leveraged that lordship to benefit you. That you might, in Paul's words, progress and have joy. Did you know 
that joy, Christian joy, is most sturdy when you're serving others in Jesus' name? Do you believe that? I think of the first few nights where I was a dad. I was completely wasted. And this is just me, not Josie. uh, and, And spent. But I would have taken a bullet in a second for that lying, helpless baby. In a second, I would have taken a bullet. Why? Because I had desired to see that baby grow and flourish. When I think of that moment... I think of what Paul's getting at. It's a pinprick of what Paul's getting at. He's saying that joy actually increases when we spend ourselves to see others flourish in the Lord. Parents, when we spend ourselves in the Lord, joy actually flourishes. Children, when we think of our, our parents as we serve them, our joy actually increases. As we serve others. If you're married, if you're not married, it doesn't matter. You are called to serve. Others. And I think this turns our easy definitions of joy completely upside down, doesn't it? Because we think joy comes when we serve ourselves, but in the kingdom, joy, the joy that Paul talks about, is ours when we serve others. Joy is not self absorbed, but joy is, in a sense, self forgetful. And so let's put service to others above personal desires. That's what Paul does. He says, actually, my desire is to be with the Lord. But then he chooses the flourishing of the church over that desire. If I could choose, I would do this. But you know what? Verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary. I think that's why he can say, yes, I rejoice. Finally. There's one more essential ingredient to Christian joy, and I think it's screaming in this text. It's this. It's intimacy with Christ. It's intimacy. And I say that word intimacy instead of union, because union can start to become too theoretical for me. Intimacy, on the other hand, connotes relationship. It connotes an actual uh, contact with the living Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 21, which we'll camp out on in this section, it's, he says, for to me, to live is Christ. There's such an economy of words when he says that. To, to live is Christ. We're like, to live is, what, what do you mean to live is? That's bad grammar, Paul. What are you talking about? To live is Christ? What do you mean? What he means is that the totality of all that he is in his life is Christ. Yes, the person Jesus. That's him. He is so enveloped by Jesus that he says to live is Jesus. To live is Jesus. And to die, therefore, is gain. Why? Because more Jesus. The one I'm serving my whole life without seeing, I will now see face to face. I think this refutes the idea that Christianity is just mere fire insurance. I'm following Jesus so I don't have to go to hell. This refutes that idea because what we see is we see a man whose joy, we see a man whose desire is for Christ today. To live as Christ. And what makes you think that
we would desire Jesus when we die if we don't desire Him when we're alive. The more I study the Scriptures, the more I'm convinced that it is a profound miracle that we desire Jesus. Because in our sin, we desire ourselves. And we desire our own schemes. And we can sort of have Jesus take part in those schemes, which is very confusing to us. But there's a moment in which the Holy Spirit changes your heart and you start to desire Jesus for Jesus' sake. Not for your schemes. Not because you have ideas. Even good ideas about family or flourishing. You start to see Jesus for who he is and you desire him and Paul desires him and therefore he can say with a straight face to die is gain. We will not say to die is gain if we do not have a desire to see Jesus face to face. If that's not you, if you don't have that desire, we can pray for that. A couple applications from this is First, I think you don't have to be afraid of death. If you are a Christian, nothing will get between the love of Christ and you. If you are in Christ, not even death will separate you from that love. And you don't need to fear death. Death will not wedge between that love. That love that you have right now will only intensify. You have no no reason to be afraid of death if you're a Christian. If you're afraid of death and you're not a Christian, let me ask you right now, what is stopping you? What is stopping you from embracing Jesus? What is stopping you? I think, I think it's a good question to ask. I think in our culture, we tend to ignore death and we tend to ignore how it levels all of our schemes. But if we are believers, we can talk about it. And if you're in the church, you're going to hear about it. And I want to encourage you to trust Jesus so that you can say with Paul, to die is gain. And not have any shred of doubt about what that means when you die. He has full assurance that when he sees Jesus face to face, he will indeed hear the words, I love you. He knows that death will not separate him from that love. And you can too. You can too. Turn from your sins just by simply saying, I'm a sinner. I don't have, I, don't, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. And rest upon the finished work of Jesus It's a simple prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me. That's it. And you can have the same assurance that Paul has. I think one other thing to talk about before we close up is this, is that I think that this is a helpful counterbalance to how we approach death in the West. On the one hand, I think that we do a terrible job confronting this issue of death. We tend to ignore it. We tend to put it away so that we don't have to deal with it. I remember when I was a kid, um, I didn't go to funerals by my own choice because I didn't want to confront it. I overheard some parents in the other, uh, at the coffee shop, and they were talking about, do we have our kid come to this funeral or not? They were talking about it. That is an issue that is unique in our cultural moment. We can actually hide from death. We can actually do things physically to our bodies to pretend that we're not aging and heading towards death. But what I'm convinced of is that texts like this tell me that it's my job as your pastor, as it's been said, to help you die well. Without fear. 
to help you say with even conviction to die is gain because I will, get, I will see Christ. Now let's not get warped. And I've seen, I've seen a warping of this happen where we start to celebrate death. Let's not, let's not get warped. Let's lament death. It's not the way it's supposed to be, death. We grieve, but this text tells us we grieve as those who have hope. So I don't know about you, but I'm really encouraged by this picture of joy. As I walk into this holiday season, it's this picture of joy that encourages me. I can say with Paul, yes, and I will rejoice no matter what happens, no matter what I'm worried about, because I have assurance. I have assurance. I have a purpose that is far bigger than I realize. And I have intimacy with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. For this challenging text, thank you, Lord, that you are destroying our shallow definitions of joy and then rebuilding upon it something more sturdy and life-sustaining. Holy Spirit, could we say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as King? Could we say with Paul, yes, I will rejoice. We need you to work in our hearts. For that to be true. Give us assurance. Help us know the very core of who we are. That the verdict is in. Because we're in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.